The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 10. This message was given during the evening service on August 28, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon title is The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 10. The part number will just change. The sermon title will stay the same until I'm done these four marks. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, the four marks are listed right there. 1 Peter is a book about joy in the midst of suffering. Suffering is in every chapter of this epistle. And we come to this first major passage on suffering in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9. Follow in your text along with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 to 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, attaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The four marks of superjoy suffering, or the four marks of suffering that requires superjoy to go with it, is in verse 6. Superjoy is listed there, in this you greatly rejoice. It's assumed, that's superjoy. Mega joy, as the Greek would say, it's assumed. Peter's assuming that we know that we're supposed to have joy at all times. Then we have four profound marks of suffering for all believers, all cultures, all nations, all times. Number one, in your note sheet is listed, Christian suffering is temporary, even though now for a little while. Little while does not mean just a few moments in your life. Little while is a reference to your life. Suffering, this life, is a little while compared to eternity. Now, in your note sheet, even though I'm starting into Mark number two and have been with some lectures on paganism and so forth, I actually haven't gotten to Mark number two yet in the text. I'm working around the outside of it with some important things. Um, what I'm doing in the last few sermons and tonight is, if you can get the picture in your mind of a locked door, it's Mark number two on the front of the door, and it says underneath that, locked door plaque on the door that says mark number two it says um, Christian suffering is necessary before I unlock the key put the key and unlock that door and we walk into the text here in verse six which is mark number two if necessary that's mark number two in verse six I'm having us all stand as a tour group kind of outside the door and I'm teaching you things surrounding this door on the outside, prepping you for the tour when we go into the door. Do you get that picture in your mind? So we looked at some issues of paganism and so forth. But before we get to that, in your note sheet, let me just remind you, since it's been a few weeks, what was the point of the first mark of suffering and trials? So let's recap that in your note sheet. Recapping mark number one. When it says even though now for a little while. What should you write in there? Number one, 
First, focus on the temporary nature of your life when tried. First, focus on the temporary nature of your life when tried. First, focus on the temporary nature of your life when under suffering or trial. That's what we learned in that first mark. It's very simple. When you're really getting hammered with any type of suffering, you just say, this life is not forever. One day I'll be done with this. Second thing we learned, focus on the provision of God, which is joy and endurance. We learned that in Mark number one. Pray for endurance, walk by the Spirit to have joy. Pray for endurance, walk by the Spirit to have joy. Focus on the provision of God. He has two tools ready for you in your mind. Pray for endurance. Walk by the Spirit to have joy. Everyone have those? Okay. Amen? <laughs> A little gun shy on that one, aren't you? <laughs> All right. Now, I'm going to give you mark number two. And then I'm going to take you somewhere, standing outside the door of mark number two, that you may never have thought to go. And uh, you may not initially understand why I'm going to do this, okay? This is not going to be a major conviction sermon. Boy, you can take a breath of relief on that one, huh? This is going to be an informational sermon. So again, the picture is mark number two. There's four doors in front of you. We've gone in and examined door number one, which said little while. We're standing in front of lock door number two, the second mark of suffering. We haven't gone into it yet. It says the plaque, the gold plaque on the outside says suffering is necessary. So fill in mark number two, Christian suffering is necessary for the Christian to grow in holiness. Before we go into that mark extensively, there's some things I want to teach you. Okay? Now I will give you some things about that mark. We kind of have a little peephole, and we'll look through the door, through the peephole, but there's more extensive things I want to teach you about that from this chapter, but not tonight. Okay? And there's some things I want to raise as far as issues for you. And I'll explain why when I get to that. Okay? You do understand when you try to convince somebody of something, or inform somebody of something, Sometimes you have to preface your thoughts. Instead of just saying, never under any circumstances lean on the pulpit up there. That would obviously raise the question of why. So a wise person, to use this crazy example, would say, let me preface my thoughts. With some things about, and this isn't true, I'm just making this up. Some things about the pulpit, where it's standing, what's going on with the flooring. And because of those things... Never lean on the pulpit. That's what I'm going to do with you. There are some necessary things to teach you, in my opinion, before we can study the issue of suffering is necessary. So you filled in the blank. Now, let's just define something that's 
self-evident, point number one under mark number two. Necessary means some various things. Let me just give you a little caveat, a little taste of what's behind the door. Suffering is a continuous reality for the believer. Suffering is a continuous reality for the believer. Literally, the Greek reads like this. If being necessary, it is. If being necessary, it is. Necessary is a verb. It's participle acting as a verb in verse 6. Being necessary. So necessary means always needed. You can write that under number one. Necessary means always needed. Now I gave you the Greek, eideon, if necessary. Deon means, you can fill this in, needful. What is due? like paying a bill. Verbs have various conditions attached to them, just to give you a little more understanding. There's first, second, and third class conditions. Uh, James 5 um, talks about uh, healing in the third class condition. I mentioned this a few Sunday nights ago. Third class condition means this is most likely necessary, and this is something you should always expect in this situation, kind of how you would read it. Here, this is a first-class condition. This assumes the reality of the condition. So even though in James 5 it says, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and that's a third-class condition, it means this is the normal operative procedure. There has to be a little doubt in there based on whether the repentance is genuine in James 5. But here, this is first-class condition. It always assumes the reality. So we could say it this way. The if means since, always. It means since in James 5, but there's still the variable there of whether the person's really repenting. So deon, underneath deon there. This is a first class condition, since it is necessary. How do we know it's first-class condition? It's, it's the participles and the grammatical structure that tell us this. So what does this mean? Every believer must suffer in this life on a regular basis because it is always necessary. Got it? Now, it doesn't mean you like it, but it should never catch us by surprise. The Christian is surprised by the suffering. 1 Peter 1.6. 1 Peter 1.6. The middle of it. It's Mark number 2. If necessary, since necessary. We should never be surprised by suffering. Why are we? We don't expect it. This destroys the expectation of not having suffering. Are we clear on this? 
we really have to train ourselves to understand that uh, not suffering is an exception. Suffering is a regular reality. We're not talking suffering from sin. Most Christians don't suffer from trials for the Lord. They suffer because of their own sin. That's different. Still kind of looking through the peephole on this before we open the door. Now that raises a second issue as we stand outside the door marked the necessity of suffering. And that's point number two in your note sheet. But is everyone clear on point number one? Does anyone need anything repeated? It's my opportunity to sip my big gulp. Necessary means suffering is a continuous reality for the believer. Suffering is a continuous reality for the believer. Necessary versus optionality. I already talked to you about optionality. Fill in the blank. Suffering is non-optional for the believer. This is looking at it from the opposite direction. Necessary means all the time you must have this. Suffering is non-optional for the believer. And I've been introducing this context, this contrast between necessary and optionality the last two sermons. Most believers do not understand this concept or have never heard of it before. By the way, I told you last Sunday night or the Sunday night before that I coined the term optionality because on my three computers that I have, my notorious computers, um, the dictionaries on each one of them don't list it as a word. Well, I happened to Google the term optionality and it actually is a word, so I didn't coin it. I'm shocked at my error. It's an antiquated word that actually goes back to the 1800s. You don't hear people talk about optionality. But it is a word. But let's not focus on that. Now, this is where we're backing away from the door and the understanding of this verse and this term and need to understand some other things. And I understand that either remotely or here in the auditorium you may lose me on some of these things. If you've never thought down the rabbit hole that I'm going to go right now, let me remind you again of number two, necessary versus optionality. Suffering is not optional, and I don't think many Christians realize that. And this takes us away from our text now. Oh, come on, why can't we go through the door and just learn what more nuggets we need from verse 6 about necessary? I can't yet take us through that locked door completely. We need to back off. You won't be prepared. You'll make wrong decisions about the necessity of suffering unless we go somewhere else. So that raises number three. Backing away from the door of verse 6, looking at some other things now. Number three in your note sheet. Most believers hold to the false notion false notion that they are free in Christ to do almost anything not commanded against as sin in the Bible. Most believers hold to the false notion they are free in Christ to do almost anything not commanded against as sin in the Bible. And I type the next two sentences for you in your note sheet so there's no misunderstanding what I'm saying. 
Did anyone need those blank? Repeat it. Next, are Christians free to do almost anything? Marry whoever, buy whatever, live wherever, choose a church whatever, choose any job whatever. Is life full of free options for the believer? I'm going to give you the answer. So write it down. The answer is yes and no. How do you like that one? Yes and no. I don't need to teach you what is free to do. I need to teach you what is not free. Have you ever considered the fact that we don't just sin by disobeying direct commands in the Bible? We can sin by doing things that are morally neutral with the wrong motivation. Have you thought of that? You say, give me an example. Is it sinful to eat food? No. Divorce from context, right? But it is sinful to gluttonize. Is marriage wrong? Does the Bible condemn marriage? So some Christians think I'm free to marry anyone, but no, there's constraints. And so it goes. Is it wrong to watch TV? No. I knew Christians years ago, some pastors that said TV was sinful. They misunderstood. The, 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 well, the Bible doesn't condemn thou shalt not watch TV. Of course it doesn't. So I'm free to watch anything. No. It's your motivation. I could sin two ways watching TV. The content and the amount of time. What if, is golf sinful? No. What if I golfed every Sunday and never went to church? Do you see the point? Motivation can take innocent things and turn them from freedom into necessity to avoid. So we look back at those sentences under number three. Well, I, I'm free to marry. I'm free to live anywhere I want. There's no verse that says I can't live somewhere. And this is the argument I've had against suffering over the years. John, and I've taught this before and to other people and counseled outside our church, somebody that I counseled on this very subject who's never attended here. And the individual said, are you telling me that I can't move anywhere I want? I mean, there's nowhere in the Bible that says I can't move anywhere I want. Right, there's no verse that says you can't move anywhere I want, I said to this guy. Well, then I can move anywhere I want. Well, it depends on your motivation. See, it depends on why you're doing what you're doing. See? Changing churches. Is there some rule that says you have to stay here? No. Can I leave this church anytime I want? The answer is yes or no. If you're leaving for a sinful reason, the answer would be no. You shouldn't leave a church for a sinful reason. shouldn't stay for a sinful reason either. So there's a host of things that the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not do or thou shalt do. But yet we have to be careful on motivation as to why we do them. Most Christians don't realize this. They just, they're very simplistic. Well, there's no command on this. I can do anything I want. So, to use the moving one that I used with this individual. So if the person says, well, I'm moving because I don't like my neighbors. I don't like the, the people around me. I don't like the community. It's filthy. It's dirty. My property values are going down. That's not a biblical reason to move because we're working on the assumption that God wants us all as believers in a specific job, a specific marriage, and a specific location to live. That's an assumption I make from the text of scriptures. 
when the Bible says go into all the world and preach the gospel, we don't have carte blanche on that. Okay? So I'm pausing again, not because I'm trying to drive into you like this morning I didn't do, but I'm giving you opportunity to think. Okay? So if you have the idea that you can basically do anything you want because there's no verse against it, you could be in very dangerous water. Okay? So let's see if we can understand this. Number four. This goes back to the issue of suffering, right? Well, there's no, there's no verse that says I can't avoid suffering, so I'll just move to get away from suffering. I'll change jobs to get away from suffering. I'll divorce my spouse to get away from suffering. There's no verse that says I can't do that. You've got to be careful with that. So let's talk about point number four. Freedom versus enslavement, which is the same as optional versus necessity. Enslavement means you have no choice. Freedom means you have choices. When can I do something not specifically commanded for or against in scriptures? When am I free to do it and when am I not free to do it? Let's start with the easy one. Underneath it, we are not free to sin. I'm not going to teach you what's optional for you, what you're free to do. I'm just going to give you what you're not free to do and then anything not in these listings of not free to do, you can do. Does that make sense? Instead of giving you 50 things you're free to do, I'll give you the four or five you aren't free to do and then everything else is personal preference. We're not free to sin. You know that from Galatians 5. Go over there. And this is a monumental restriction on our freedom. Galatians 5. By the way, if you think I'm hard in my sermons like this morning, read verse 13 or verse 12 to yourself. Just, just to you right now, read verse 12, and aren't you glad Paul's not up here? <laughs> I never got up here and said, I wish you'd all mutilate yourself. <laughs> wow. Aren't you glad there aren't 13 parts to my sermon series on verse 12? Verse 13, you're called the freedom brother. Amen, amen, amen. I'm free to do whatever I want. No, you're not. Write it down under this first enslavement. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Opportunity is a military term. It means a base of attack. But through love, duleto, be enslaved to one another. So you do two things you don't have freedom to do in that verse. You're not free to sin in two ways. Write them down under that, in that paragraph under that, or not the paragraph, but maybe the line only that I gave you. You're not free to use anything morally neutral as an opportunity to sin, opportunity for the flesh. You don't have a right to do that. So the Christian, ignorant Christian, well, it doesn't say in the Bible, I can't watch TV, so I'm free to do whatever I want. That's an opportunity for the flesh, isn't it? Right? So your freedom is restricted when you use something that isn't specifically commanded against as an opportunity to sin. You don't have that right. And secondly, you are not free to stop loving other people at church. 
Where does it say in the Bible, I have to love that moron that is at church? Right there in verse 13. Through love, serve one another. Your freedom doesn't mean that you can be selfish, in other words. Now that has major constraints on us now. Anything in my life that is an opportunity to sin, even if it's morally neutral, I'm not free to go willy-nilly and do whatever I want. Go back to number three. You see those two sentences I wrote under number three? Are Christians free to do almost anything? No. How about Mary? I'll marry who I want. No Bible verse is going to tell me I can't marry so-and-so. Really? 1 Corinthians 7 tells us we are free to marry only in the Lord. Well, I can marry this person. They made a profession of faith in 1901. Oh, 1901. So it's been over 120 years. How have they been doing living for the Lord for the last 120 years? Oh, they live like the devil. But I know they're saved. They made a profession. That's just abuse of freedom, isn't it? Singles, you don't marry someone because they made a profession of faith, especially in an apostate age. You better see evidences of conversion before you marry any. People are liars. They find out you're religious as a single, and you tell them, I, well, the Bible says, Pastor John says, our church says I can't marry someone who's not a believer. The person will say, oh, I want this guy or this woman. I'm a believer. Yeah, I did that thing. Oh, I'm so glad to hear. See, so you're saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. Yeah. I love being saved. I was at the casino the other night working on my being saved. They'll tell you anything they want. Don't be so foolish. Next. Hey, who, there's no, no sin moving. Or buying. And buy whatever I want. I can, I can live anywhere. There's no rule that says I can't do that. Who are you to tell me, John? You can buy whatever you want? Really? What if it puts you in massive bankruptcy type of debt? What if it's driven, your buying is driven by lust? I know all about that. If I take the food cart and I'm going down the aisle by myself, Let's say Sue's at a ball game and I got to go shopping. I'm all by myself. My cart magically turns towards the lucky charms and the extra large. Well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with that. There are no food laws that tell us it's immoral. But for a guy like me, it's an opportunity for the flesh. I mean, I don't eat lucky charms. I pour it in a huge funnel and stick the end of the funnel on my mouth. I can live wherever I want. Look at that paragraph under number three again. Can you tell me it's sinful to move somewhere? Well, why are you moving? Is it an opportunity for the flesh? When would it be an opportunity for the flesh? Fears of safety? Concerns about economics? Those would be two. There would be sinful motivations. We're not to live in fear. And God never said that we move in order to maintain property values. Righteous reasons for living in an area would be to, a, to be a, a light bearer in a dark community, to be near a church where you can sufficiently minister in. So if I don't live, we live three blocks from Eastside Bible Church, I'm sinning, come on. We're talking about motivations here. 
This is where Christians just swing into legalism. Swing into it. It's all motivations. Opportunity for the flesh. Choose a church. You mean it can actually be sinful choosing a church? Yeah. You choose a church for the wrong reasons or don't come to a church for wrong reasons. There are right reasons to attend and wrong reasons to attend. We're not free to do whatever we want with church. What about job? Yeah. You know, does God want us, and we're going to see this, God wants us in certain locales to be light bearers. So when is it right to leave a job and when is it wrong to leave a job? Sinful motivations. Is money really an issue as to why a person should leave a job to go somewhere else? It could be. If what I'm being paid is so poor I can't pay my bills, but not because I am wasting money, I legitimately am a good steward and I still can't live, then that would be a legitimate reason to find another job. But so I can increase my standard of living, that's not a reason. Hardship at work is definitely never a reason unless the hardship you're being asked to do is to compromise the word of God. Christians don't think this way. They figure opportunity arises, I'm free to do whatever I want. No, you are not. Mm -mm. Especially when we're called to suffering, and many times the suffering comes through the workplace. We're not free to divest ourselves out from under suffering. Well, that implies, John, that God has us in a specific place to live, in a specific job. Yeah, that's exactly right. As we'll see in some scriptures to follow. We can't discern where God wants us. He does it by directing our lives and our steps. We better not corrupt God's path for us with carnal decision-making. So increasing finances so I can live a nicer life, buy more things. That's not a reason to leave a job or keep one. Bad people working with, that's not a reason to quit a job or suffering that's going on, being treated bad, employees, bosses lying to us. Those aren't reasons. So life is full of free options, but this 1 Peter 1.6 still slams home, we're called to suffer all the time. To make any decision to remove suffering is never God's will. It's not. What about all those Christians that work real hard up north, then they move to Florida or Arizona, it's time to retire and enjoy the good life. Really? Is that what the Bible says we're called to do? Well, who says I can't move to Florida or to Arizona and rake my stones and sit in a lawn chair and sip my drink? I, I worked hard all these years. I thought suffering was continuous until you die, according to 1 Peter 1.6. Oh, you're a legalist. Oh, am I really? So it's okay, okay at some point in life to avoid all suffering and partake of just comfort and ease. It's okay to do that. So randomly at 65 or 70, I have a right to divest myself from this command in 1 Peter 1.6. Because I'm old and I've paid my dues. Really? No. Better be very careful. My spouse is treating me horrible. So I didn't need to see any fruit to marry him. And now there is no fruit so I can divorce him. 
Before I had a minimalist view when I married. I wanted to marry this person. Oh yeah, they're saved. Yeah, they're saved. Just say the words, I'm saved. I'm saved. Okay, I know you're a believer then. I fulfilled the criteria in the Lord. Now the person acts like the devil incarnate, and I come to the conclusion, well, I guess I was wrong. Now that this person's acting like Satan incarnate, I'm free to divorce because I don't want any more suffering. Really? Where do we get that from? I don't like being single, so I'll marry anyone and pretend that they're saved to avoid the suffering of singlehood because we all know that singlehood is the worst condition a human could ever live in. Really? Where does it say that in the Bible? And I'm married to a monster now, and God doesn't want me to suffer married to this monster, so I'm going to divorce. God would not want me to continue in suffering, really, because 1 Peter 1.6 says, it is necessary you suffer always. You make a bad choice for marriage, you are required to put up with it the rest of your life. Christians don't want to hear this stuff. Uh, okay, so go back to point number one. What does it say in point number one? Necessary suffering is what? What were the blanks you filled in in point number one? Continuous reality. Unless you and I decide that we're free to just divest ourselves from that. Whenever you make any decisions based on those major ones under number three, Marriage, purchases, living somewhere, choosing a church, choosing a job, leaving a job. How do you know you use biblical criteria and weren't motivated by sinful, sinful choices? How would you know that? You just assume because the door opens that it's God's will? Satan opens doors too. So how do you know? It should raise some doubts for many of us. Next. We are not free, on the back side of the note sheet, we are not free to violate God's will for our lives. We are not free to violate God's will for our lives. There's eight wills of God in the Bible. You do have no right, and I have no right to violate any of them. Do you remember what they are? I said this last Sunday night, I won't belabor the point, but if you don't know the eight wills of God, how could you possibly be doing them? Can we obey in ignorance? Teaching one of my kids to drive. Daddy, I don't know what a gas pedal is. I don't know what a steering wheel is. What's that red sign that says stop means? But don't worry, Daddy. I am completely ignorant on how to drive. But just give me the keys. Really? Ignorance is bliss? I can obey the Bible in ignorance? Hmm. Could you write the eight wills of God down there on the top of that sheet on those two lines? And could you write them down and give biblical defense for them? If not, how do you obey them? Just kind of like the seat of your pants? Instinct, spiritually? 
No. Here they are. Saved. God calls you to be saved. God's will that you be submissive to all authority. Always to all authority. See, if you didn't like your boss and you quit because of your boss, or you didn't like your husband because, you, uh, because he's a wicked husband and you quit on those authority figures, you've just violated one of the eight wills of God, right? But I thought I was free to marry whoever I wanted and whatever job I wanted. Really? Not according to submissive. Unless that authority figure tells you to violate the word of God, you are to submit always. But it's not just. That's right. Life is not just. Exactly. Save, submissive. Number three, spirit-filled. I taught you this morning how to be spirit-filled. If you're spending very little time on the word of God and you read it legalistically, then you're not spirit-filled. You're violating one of the eight wills of God. And there's no way that you could trust your freedom of decision-making. You can't trust your freedom to make decisions in non-commanded areas until you are consistently obeying the eight commanded areas. Munch on that sentence for a while. We have no assurance and ability to make decisions in the non-commanded freedom areas in our life unless we're first submissive and consistently obeying in the eight commanded wills of God in our lives. Once we're consistently obeying the eight wills of God, then I have the mind of Christ and can make proper righteous decisions with proper motivations on the free areas of life. Only then. Number three, serving. If you don't know what your gifts are, you're not serving with your gifts, not only are you out of the will of God, you're probably not a believer. You cannot possibly consider yourself saved never serving with your gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Sanctified. Saved, submissive, spirit-filled, serving, sanctified. 2 Peter 1, be holy as I am holy. What does that entail? Do you know what it entails? How do you know when you're holy, when you're sinning all the time? Saved, submissive, spirit-filled, serving, sanctified, satisfied. If you are a whiner continuously, always complaining about your lot in life, you have no real thankfulness. According to 1 Thessalonians, the will of God is that we are thankful. That's what satisfied means then you can't possibly know God's will for you. If you're not keeping the eight wills of God consistently, you can't make decisions in the non-commanded freedom of issue areas because your motivations are always going to be messed up. See, if I'm walking in sanctification, that guides the freedom to turning on the TV. Do you understand that? Now, the written will of God to be holy and sanctified constrains my freedom to turn on a TV and watch anything I want. But if I'm not living in the written will of God concerning sanctification, it's a wild, wild west on the internet and TV, and I'm sinning like crazy with my freedom. You do the eight wills, then your mind is directed with freedom of righteousness to watch in the other areas. Save, submissive, spirit-filled, serving, sanctified, satisfied, suffering. Oh, our first Peter one here. It's God's will that you suffer. So avoidance of suffering. Any decision-making to avoid suffering is out of God's will. Anything you do to avoid suffering means you're out of God's will. We're called to it continuously. You see it in 1 Peter 1.6. 
And lastly, this is the most horrible alliterated word I could ever come up with, sophied. Sophied, what is that? S-O-P-H-I-E-D, S-O-P-H-I-E-D, I coined that word for sure. Sophied, well I needed a word for wisdom that started with the letter S, give me a break. It's the Latin and Greek word for wisdom. It is God's will that you walk in wisdom, James tells us. You live in wisdom. Well, I don't know what wisdom is. What's wisdom? Then you're not doing it. If you're not doing it, how could you possibly make biblical decisions in the non-commanded areas of life if you don't live in wisdom? And, 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 and Proverbs 1 tells us we're to continuously being, to be praying for wisdom. You don't pray for wisdom, you don't have any. If you don't have any, you've lost any ability to make decision-making issues in your life in the non-commanded areas of your life. Do you see how this is coming home to roost on the issue of suffering? You, will, you and I will always trick our way out of suffering by changing the various perimeters for marriage, purchases, where we live, church we choose, job we get into or leave. Those all get trashed when we refuse to accept the necessity of suffering. So if you want to trust your mind in the non-commanded areas of your life, that your motivations are good, you have to make sure you're consistently obeying those eight and be able to justify them from scriptures and analyze your life I tell people in counseling, that's a big list, those eight. It takes a lot of time to figure those out in the scriptures, not just what they mean, but how to do them. You can't fulfill the eight wills of God for your life by next Sunday. This is a life path where Paul talks to the Colossians about growing in the mind of Christ so I won't make freedom of decisions with carnal motivations and number three lastly we are not free to violate God's guidance in our lives we're not free to violate God's guidance in our lives only after I'm doing the eight wills of God can I now pray this prayer that I'm suggesting to you right now? God, I don't know what to do in these decisions of life. Should I move here? Should I keep or leave this job? Should I marry this person? Should I make this big purchase? I don't know what to do. Having for months and months, Lord, submitted, knowing and submitting to the eight wills of God, I am now trusting that you will direct my steps circumstantially and my mind to make right decisions. Oh my goodness, how Christians jump to that prayer first. Okay, God, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to trust. You're just going to open or close the door. I'm living like a carnal fool, but you direct me now. I want this BMW, the gold-plated version. Yes, Lord, I know that it's only minimum wage that I'm earning. 
If you want me to buy this gold edition BMW, I'm trusting you, Lord, that the loan will go through. You do see the evil of that, don't you? In conclusion, for tonight, let's just review Psalm 37, shall we? Only when you're righteous can you trust your decision-making. And how do you know when you're righteous? The eight wills of God. Psalm 37, verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. So what does that tell you about growing debt? Wow. A wicked person has massive growing debt, right? But the righteous is gracious and gives. Can you trust your decision-making if you're not growing in love? Part of sanctification. Psalm 37, verse 21. If you're a selfish Gus and you've got massive debt growing, could you trust your decision-making on anything concerning money? No, because you violated the will of God in that area of sanctification, right? Verse 22, for those blessed by him will inherit the land. God has to open the door for the land, just like Israel. Verse 22, but those cursed by him will be cut off. When we're righteous, when we're righteous, we can trust him to direct our steps. And how do you know when you're righteous? The eight wills of God. Verse 23, the steps of a man. Which man? The man in verse 21, A, or the man in verse 21, B. The man in verse 22, A, or the man in verse 22, B. The steps of a man is the righteous man, established or firm by the Lord. He directs our steps, and God delights in the way that that righteous man is going. You can't trust the way you're in if you're not righteous. And you're not righteous if you not only didn't know the eight wills of God, but you've never been committed to a life of devotion and submission to what is in the Bible. How would God ever bless your non-biblical decisions of life if you ignore the biblical mandates? And verse 24 brings up suffering God's will number seven. You are going to fall. Suffering. But it's controlled. Just because you're righteous in verse 23, and just because he establishes the way for you, opens and closes doors, directs your circumstances, that does not mean it is devoid of suffering in verse 24. You just won't be hurled headlong. It is not out of control suffering. It is controlled. Because the Lord is the one who what? Holds his hand. Who? Any Christian? Any decision? Doesn't matter what the decision is. I'm free in Christ. There's no verse that says I can't do that. Hmm. Proverbs 3. Got to be righteous. And I've given you the foundations of righteousness in those eight wills of God. Every one of those wills, by the way, in the various passages, and I didn't give you all the passages. You're going to have to look it up. 
You're going to have to look up the word will, W-I-L-L, in the New Testament to find any verses that say this is God's will. And when it says this is God's will, that's a major Mount Everest issue in our lives. Now look at Proverbs 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. There you go. Which commandments? Well, the eight. I start with the big eight. Verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Great. I'll live as long as God wants. He won't cut my life out. And I'll have that valuable third fruit of the Spirit, peace. Verse 3. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. You are saturating yourself. As Spurgeon said, my blood is bibbling. Under this little empty quiet time, I read it. Okay, done. Thank you very much, Jesus. Bye. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That is the Hebraistic metaphor for application and obedience. You write them on the tablet of your mind. You're memorizing, meditating. This is what I want. How can anyone think that they're in the will of God when they don't even know what the eight wills of God are? So you will find grace, verse 4, and good repute in the sight of God and man. God's grace is an abundant supply. Favor is the word for grace in the Hebrew. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That is supreme dedication and devotion. Only then, when you are devoted to what is in the word, can you trust what you're doing outside of the word. And that's why it says when you're trusting in the Lord, you will not, verse 5, lean on your own understanding. You don't trust your mind. The only way you can trust your thinking in the non-commanded issues of life is if you're doing the beginning of verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, which goes back to the heart of verse 1. Only the heart that is keeping the word of God. Imagine what this does for devastation. I really don't have any idea now that it was God's will for the job I've taken, the person I've married, the thing that I purchased, the place where I'm living. It's all up in the air now. I thought God was directing us because we had open doors. No. Not on your life. Verse 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Would that not, at the very least, include the eight wills of God in the New Testament? Would it not? Yes? Then and only then, in verse 6, do we get in the non-issues of life, the opening and closing and doors and the directing of our steps, and he will make your path straight. That's the criteria. Now do you understand why we didn't just go walking through this door of necessity? It is necessary that we suffer. Well, John, yeah, but we're free in Christ to do whatever we want. I mean, there's nowhere that says I can't marry, job, buy, church, live. Really? What a shipwreck. So in your note sheet, does the Bible teach us that God directs the steps of the righteous child of God? What's the answer on that line? Yes. I gave you a line and a half to write the word yes. Next, does God then open and close doors as he did for Paul to direct him as where he wants us to be the light bearers in this world to fulfill the Great Commission? Yes. Only if you're in the will of God. He does not direct the steps of the carnal man. You saw that in Psalm 37. Only the godly will have your steps directed. Next. 
So that means we do not have freedom to live anywhere we want, serve anywhere in, church, in any church, marry anyone we want, get a job anywhere we want, unless we first make sure we are godly. On the blank lines, yes. Your freedom to do whatever you want is conditioned on your spiritual walk with God. And your spiritual walk with God is conditioned upon you having the mind of Christ. And your mind of Christ is conditioned upon fulfilling and obeying the eight wills of God. The godly believer knows by faith that he that God wants the believer in certain places to do his will. He wants godly believers in certain living areas, making certain purchases, doing certain things with their money, being in certain churches. He wants them as light bearers in certain unsaved environments. You can't tell that you're in the right places in those non-biblical areas unless you're fulfilling the biblical criteria first. And since God isn't verbally telling us where to go, you have to walk in the wills of God, praying fervently after you were consistently walking in them. But then you pray, God, please guide me. Then you pray open and closed doors, only after you fulfill the eight wills of God. Then you trust God to direct your steps. He will open the door, and then he will close it. You stay in whatever condition you're in until God opens or closes the door after you fulfill the eight wills of God. And an open door is never to remove suffering from your life since suffering is one of the eight wills of God. Lastly, this evening, we can only trust our decision-making then when we are godly as defined by submitting consistently to the eight wills of God. This is how you walk by the Spirit. This is why Christ in Matthew 7 said, the true defining moment that shows a person is a true believer is if they do the will of God. He said that right in Matthew 7. You only know if you are a true believer. Your only assurance is if you're doing the will of God. And there are eight of them in the New Testament. Next Sunday night, I caught a fly in my office, and I put it in ointment, and we will analyze it. Thank you, dear Lord, for the time together in the Word tonight. Drive us to your Word to see if these things be true in your name. Amen.